Ocean City Church, so glad that you are with us today. Happy October. We are continuing in a series that we started amazingly four weeks ago called Static, Hearing God's Voice Through the Noise. And, uh, and it's amazing. Oh, I was up in Brainerd, Minnesota for two days this past week. I got the opportunity to speak at a Youth for Christ uh, rally. And in front of about, I got to speak to about 700 teenagers. And it was such a fun time. But it was amazing that when I got to Brainerd, and I escaped the city, escaped kind of the daily routine. It's amazing how easy it was for me to hear the voice of God. It was amazing. I mean, it spent, I spent some time in prayer, writing some messages, doing some administrative stuff for the church. And it was, it was just incredible. I, I was going to put a picture up of my scenery, but I didn't want to make any, everyone jealous of where I was. But let's just say it was beautiful. But the, and it, it was so just refreshing because it reminded me, and I want to put uh, just this first slide up, uh, that the fact that God is still speaking. You know, like we have been in this series for four weeks talking about how do you hear God's voice through the noise. And I want to encourage you this morning that no matter what you may be feeling, no matter what your relationship with God may look like, know this, that God is still speaking. And more specifically, we're going to go to the next slide, God wants to speak to you. God's desire is that you and I would be in relationship with him. And one of the key components in any relationship, in any marriage, right, is communication. Communication is a key part of marriage. And, and God is still speaking. God wants to speak to you. And so I just wanted to encourage some people with that today, that we've been talking about hearing God's voice. How do I hear God's voice? We've given some, some practical tools, but just know this that God desires to speak to you. God desires to be in relationship with you. He desires to communicate with you and have you communicate with him. And over the last few weeks of this series, we looked at the first week, we looked at the idea of tuning into the right signal. How do we retune our brains, our hearts, our minds into the signal that God would have us be tuned into so that we could accurately and effectively hear him? The second week, we talked about hearing God's voice through the static of insecurity. That was a tough one. Uh, last week, we talked about hearing God's voice through the static of fear. That was an even tougher one. And so we're just going to continue in the role of difficulty because today we're going to talk about hearing God's voice through the static of discouragement. We're going to talk about hearing God's voice through the static of discouragement because I don't know about you, but there are times in my life that I can, I can get really, really discouraged. I can find myself getting, in, uh, getting discouraged when a, a service at church doesn't go well a few weeks ago when my hard drive crashed and we had no technology. That was a discouraging Sunday. We made it through, but it was discouraging. I can find myself getting discouraged when, uh, when I'm not making progress in my life the way that I feel like I should be making progress in my life. Like there's moments where like, I am a 34-year-old man, husband, father of two. Why am I not further ahead than I should be. Sometimes I get, I get really discouraged when I find myself not making progress when it comes to uh, character development, when it comes to uh, dealing with a specific sin that exists in my life, those, those things that just keep popping up over and over and over again, and I, I have some victories, but I still have failures, and I get discouraged in the midst of those failures. Um, I get discouraged when my wife or my kids are frustrated or flat out mad at me. I get discouraged when things just don't go as planned. 
Um, I remember one time uh, we, we vacation often in Florida. It's kind of our, our destination. Um, we have a, uh, a beautiful timeshare. If you want to know how beautiful it is, you can talk to Nathan and Elena. We are not uh, outside of renting it out for various vacations <laughs> for a uh, very reasonable price. And, and, and yeah, just talk to Nathan and Elena. You guys want to wave your hands? They, they'll, they'll tell you about it. It was, it was a fantastic time. We still need our Disney movies back, but we'll get to that later. Um, but anyway, but we were in Florida on vacation, as we are known to do. And we were, um, as a family, going to visit one of the Disney parks. And we were, we were having a great morning. It was just one of those mornings where, man, the kids got up, and they weren't cranky. They were just kind of angels. And Addie doesn't know how to tie her shoes, but just for the sake of the story, she tied her shoes, and she was ready to get going. Like, it was a great morning. We we got free parking at the Disney park. We, they, they just looked at us and, and it was like, you know what, you just go ahead. And, and we got free parking, so we saved 20 bucks that we were going to blow on something stupid in the park. But it was just a great morning. And the minute we got through the metal detectors, not even at the park, but just the step in past the parking lot, it seemed like things just started to disintegrate. Uh, Addison and Taylor got into an argument about uh, which mode of transportation we were going to use to get to the happiest place on earth. Uh, Taylor wanted to take the train. I kind of honestly wanted to take the train because it was the last air-conditioned moment of my day. So I was, I was like, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pulling for Taylor, and I want to take the train. Addie wanted to take the ferry, which is just a humidity fan, but it's, 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 apparently it's memorable. And, and so they're arguing about which mode of transportation we're going to take to the happiest place on earth. And so then we come to find out that the train is not working, so we have to take the ferry. So Taylor freaks out and loses it, and Addie, in little sister fashion, goes, we're taking the ferry, we're taking the which just fuels the freak-out fire in my seven-year-old, and, and at the time, probably six, and, uh, and, and it was just like they were, and so we got under the ferry again to go to the happiest place on earth, and, and, and Taylor and Jen had to go up to the second floor because Taylor just couldn't be around Addie, and so me and Addie uh, go to the front, and we're looking at the thing again, we're going to the happiest place on earth and I can hear my oldest just freaking out and just it's going to be fine we're going to do this and, and, and it was just kind of one of those moments of like okay it's got to get better than this right it's got to be better than this because we're going to see Mickey we're going to go on rides we're going to eat calorie free funnel cakes because there's no way something that good could be bad for you and it was just going to be a great day well we get to the park we get through security the girls start complaining girls I live with three of them, about how long the line is to get through the second checkpoint of security. And then we have to wait to get into the park because you got to see the whole spectacle. you got to see Mickey come on the train. It's too sunny. It's too hot. Addie's standing next to me. That was the complaint. Addie was standing next to me. And then just the whole day, this line's too long. It's too hot. This isn't fun. And finally, right around uh, about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I just called it. I was like, you know what? We're going to go home, which brought about a whole nother level of freak out as we are dragging two children kicking and screaming out of the happiest place on earth and i remember getting the girls to bed back at the room uh jen just took a took a shower just to kind of clean all the anger and hatred from our children and 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 the smell of the ha and i just went into kind of the secondary room that we had uh and and i remember just sitting on the couch and being just so incredibly discouraged. We couldn't even be happy at the happiest place on earth. And I remember just thinking, is this the family that I want to be 
leading? Are these the kids that I want to be raising? And then you just kind of begin to compact discouraging things on top of discouraging things, and then you begin to kind of build kind of a base camp of discouragement no matter where you're at. And I just remember being so incredibly discouraged, and then again, as I'm compacting discouraging things on top of discouraging things, it led me to this idea, this thought we're going to put up on the screen, that, uh, that uh, the most negative and discouraging voice in your life is often your own. The most discouraging and negative voice in our lives is so often our own. I love what Pastor Stephen Furtick says about discouraging voices uh, in his book, Smash the Chatterbox. He says this, my soul sometimes feels like a Twitter feed where I'm following a million of the most annoying and discouraging people ever, and I cannot find the unfollow button. So my question for you this morning is this, what is it that has you discouraged today? What is it that has you discouraged today? Is it a relational issue? Is it something that is, going, that, that, that is going on with your kids, something that's happening at work, something that's happening in your, in your marriage that has you discouraged? Is there something that you have absolutely no control over in your life that has you absolutely discouraged because you can't be in control of that issue? What is it today that has you most discouraged? Now, luckily, we're not the first people in this generation to deal with discouragement. As I open the Bible, I read about so many people who find themselves in the midst of discouraging situations and circumstances, and today I want to show you a psalm that has helped me and continues to help me when I face times of discouragement, and I pray helps you too. It's Psalm 42, and we're going to kick off in verse 1, and it says this. It says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul, this was two in the morning when I typed this, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? Do you thirst for God? I know that's really not a common way when we describe any type of relationship or define a desire that we have uh, for someone or towards something. But I was thinking about this phrase, and it goes back to those hot summer days when uh, Dave and Teresa Spiegel, who are a part of this church, um, I paint for Dave every now and then. And I remember those moments in the hot summer when we were spraying and staining fences. And man, it was, I mean, when you are spraying, it just seems to be hotter when you're spraying offense. And I remember that there was this moment where once I get locked into a groove of like how to bend and how to move my arm and how to move with the fence, man, I feel like I can go for days. Nothing can stop me once I find that groove. And all of a sudden, I'll have found myself having sprayed several hundred feet of fence. And all of a sudden, we'll get to the end of, of, of kind of this run of fence and I'll drop the, the, the sprayer. I'll pull off my mask. And all of a sudden, I will just realize how incredibly tired and how incredibly, uh, uh, physical that experience was and I will run over to my my one gallon milk jug full of delicious ice cold water and I will suck that thing down like my life depends on it and I will drink that water like I have never tasted something so cold or so sweet or refreshing in all of my life and I was thinking, do I thirst for God the same way that I thirst for that jug of water? Do I thirst for God like my life's dependent on it? Do I thirst for God like I've never experienced something so sweet and so perfect and so refreshing as God? Do I thirst for God in that same way? 
And I love the way that the psalmist says that his soul thirsts for not just God, but the living God. God is not some idea or historic figurehead in some sort of history book, but God is living. He is alive and he is active in your life. And the writer is saying that that's what I want. I desire the living God, that everything that he has, I want. Everything that he is, I need. And then I just, let's take a look at at, at the experience that he's actually going through picking up in verse three. He says this, my tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? So he's got these people in his face asking him the question, where's your God now? When people ever throw that question in your face like they've thrown it in mine, like they've thrown it in the psalmist, usually what they're saying is you look like a person who's been abandoned. Usually you would never walk up to somebody and ask them that question, where is your God now when things are going well, right? Why would you ever ask that? Where is your God now when things are going great? Which leads me to assume that there's something going on in the psalmist's life that's rather painful or difficult that's, that, that, that he happens to be walking through. And just to put salt on the wound, he's got people who are now taunting him because of the thing or things that have happened in his life. His external condition is that of ex- is a, a that of experiencing pain and his internal condition is discouraged and depressed because what does he say at the beginning of verse 3 my tears have been my food day and night whatever has happened to this guy is so bad that he is on the verge of tears all the time you ever been there Have you ever been at that place of being so stressed, so overwhelmed, one too many sleepless nights away from just feeling like everything is about to fall apart and crumble on top of your head, like you're going to come completely unraveled and you stub your toe, you bump your head, you drop your keys or you lose your keys and all of a sudden you just crumble into a puddle of tears. Look at what it says in verse 4. He says, these things I remember. He's thinking and speaking and communicating past tense. He goes, I remember as I pour out my soul how I used to, there's that past tense again, how I used to go with the multitude. And I wouldn't just go with the multitude. I would lead the procession to the house of God. Man, if there was something in the church that needed to get done, man, I'm the first person to sign up, man. I'm worshiping with my spirit and with my body and everything. I remember I used to be that person. I remember having those feelings. I would lead the processional with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. What in your life are you dealing with that makes you refer to everything good in the past tense? And then he says in the first part of verse 5, why so downcast? Oh, my soul, why so disturbed within me? I can't even begin to tell you guys how many times I've asked that question to myself. Maybe not so eloquently or with such dramatic prose as the psalmist, but my question usually sounds a lot like this. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you, Steve? 
Why are you so depressed? Why are you so discouraged? You have everything going for you. Why, to quote trolls, why do they want to invite this, this uh, party pooper to poo poo on the party? That's me. No one's going to want to invite me to the party because I'm a party pooper. I'm going to poo poo all over somebody's party. Why? What is wrong with you? And today I want to suggest three really quick, simple ways, right out of Psalm 42, that you and I can begin to push back discouragement in our lives. I want to get through this because I've got a fun surprise for you at the end. I may have just foreshadowed it, but I'm not going to tell you, but I might have. I totally did. Anyway, um, I just want to give you three simple ways to push back discouragement in our life. And, and disclaimer, you notice I didn't say use the word defeat. I know in Christian circles we're very big about defeats. I'm going to conquer it. I'm going to defeat it. Because, and the reality is I don't think that any of us, this side of heaven, will ever beat discouragement because discouragement is situational. If you remove yourself from every situation in life, yeah, you could probably beat discouragement, but you're not interacting. You're not living the way that God has intended you to live. If you're, gonna, if you're in any kind of relationship, you'll face discouragement. If you interact with people, there's going to be discouragement. If you drive a car, there's going to be discouragement. If you're a Vikings fan, there's going to be discouragement. If you're a, a Twins fan, we're doing well right now, but I'm just going to be real. There's eventually going to be some point of discouragement. If you are a Timberwolves fan, we don't even talk about that because we just got to put you on suicide watch. But it's like, it's, it's, it's just, it, there's just those moments that in life we are going to face discouragement, but the only way we will defeat discouragement is if our hearts are right with God through Christ when we step into the next side of eternity, man, we will have defeated discouragement because everything's going to be made right. So I want to give you three steps on how you can push back against discouragement in your life and begin to experience some victory. The first one is this. Begin to preach to yourself. Hopefully, I'm not the only voice preaching to you during the week. You need to begin to preach to yourself. Let's go back to Psalm 42, starting in verse 5. It says this, why are you so downcast? This word downcast is actually a very interesting word because in the Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in, the word downcast was actually a shepherding term that was describing an instance where a sheep has fallen over and gotten on its back and not able to get itself right back up again. This is what the psalmist is saying is going on with his soul. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And then I love what he says. He says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Let me ask you a question. Who is the psalmist writing to? He's not writing to God. This is not a prayer. And he's not writing to us. He's speaking to himself. He is preaching to himself, why so downcast? Why so disturbed? Put your hope in God. Uh, pastor, author, and speaker Paul David Tripp says this, every day you listen to the strongest and loudest theologian yourself. Every day you preach to yourself a gospel of your loneliness, inability, and lack of resources, or you faithfully preach to yourself the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you preach to yourself? Do you preach to yourself discouragement or promise? Hopelessness or hope? Condemnation or reconciliation? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, Lloyd another pastor who pastored one of the largest churches in the world in London in the 50s and 60s, when commenting on Psalm 42, he says this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? 
So you wake up in the morning and there's immediately that voice that reminds you all of the things that you have to do today. And because you hit the snooze button once, you're now four and a half hours behind everything on your schedule. There's no way you're ever going to catch up. And so you put your head back down in your pillow at night and there's a voice telling you of all these people who you've let down, all these people who don't like you because all the only reason they have you around is so that they can talk about you once you leave. There's actually no way that God could ever love you because of all the things you've done in your past and you know about forgiveness, but it, the forgiveness doesn't count for you because because you've got some sort of specific thing going on with you where forgiveness doesn't matter and you put your head down and you go to sleep and you are talking to you and you are listening to yourself and sometimes you need to tell yourself, shut up and hope in God. Sometimes you need to tell yourself to shut up and hope in God. God, and this isn't some motivational, feel-good, self-help kind of garbage. We've got Barnes & Noble bookstores with all that stuff, and it gets you nowhere. This, is, this has more teeth to it. This is you preaching to yourself about the truth of who God is. So when you have that voice, you telling yourself that everyone is against you, you have to do some preaching to that voice. Again, you, a little Romans 8.31, that if God is for me, who can be against me? Or that voice, again, you is preaching, is telling you there's no way that God could ever love you. So you need to tell that voice, again, you, a little Romans 8.39, that says nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you hear yourself say it's hopeless, you need to preach back to yourself that nothing is impossible with God. This is the dynamite that blows away discouragement in our lives. We need to quit listening to ourselves, and we need to start preaching to ourselves. That's the first way we can begin to push back discouragement from our lives. The next way is this. Worship God even when you don't feel like it. Worship God even when you don't. I don't want to be a liar. You're already a liar. Sorry. So why not lie your way into out of discouragement because let's worship God even when we don't feel like it. Again, after the psalmist says about all the difficult things that are going on in his life, he begins to tell himself to hope in God again. He says at the end of verse 5, for I will yet praise him. Even in the midst of difficult things, I will yet praise him. In verse 8, he says, by day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. Worship is powerful. Worship is powerful. To put it another way, I'm going to put it up on the slide. Worship is a problem to, for your problems. Worship is a problem for your problems. I don't know what the problem is you're facing today, but I do know this. When you begin to worship God for who he is and for what he has already done in your life, you are taking power away from your problem and you are giving it back to God. It is impossible to worship both God and your problems at the same time. It's impossible. You can't worship both your problem and the God who you believe will take away your problem at the same time. You have to choose one. And even when you don't feel like it, I want to encourage you to worship God. I want to encourage you to, man, put on some worship music. Get some music around you that will get your feet moving. Get your heart pumping. Man, put some things in your ears that will affect your heart because nothing affects us like music does. Nothing affects us like music does. Wasn't I'll punch a 12-year-old if the right music's on. 
Like seriously, like I'll get I'll I'll get into a, a metal show and I don't care if you're 10, 12, 13 girls, I don't care. I'm going to go nuts because there's just something about that music that gets my body moving and I'll apologize later, but man there is something that happens. I, I DJ wedding receptions. Man, don't tell me there's not power in music because I will see grandma shaking on the dance floor when Can't Stop the Feeling by Justin Timberlake comes on and she will just two-step her life away and no one's seen her walk in three years. But man, when the right song comes on, something happens. There is power in music. There is power in worship. Because again, it's, it's easy to worship God when things are going well. It's easy to worship God when things are going great. And I'm not talking about those times. Worship God when, when those times, when God appears to be most distant and most silent. We have to remember to worship him. And once again, I feel like I have hit on this so much recently. But we have to worship God and not allow our feelings to determine our truth. Could you imagine if I walked up to Jen, my wife, my beautiful Wonderful, patient wife. I feel like I have to say that before I say what I'm about to say next. And I walked with Jen, and I just informed her that today I'm going to start seeing other women because I just don't feel like being faithful today. You would be looking at a dead man. Like, she would kill me where I stand. And she grew up in the backwoods of Brainerd. Like, I, I'm pretty confident she can kill a bear. Like, she would drop me. You would be looking at a dead man because, the, but, and, I'll be, and here's the thing. I'm gonna be, there have been parts and times in my marriage where remaining faithful is a struggle. Where remaining faithful is a struggle, and I don't always feel those feelings of faithfulness towards my wife. But if I allowed my feelings to determine my reality, I would be a complete mess of a human being because feelings are fickle and inconsistent at best. You see, God's the same in spite of your feelings. God's the same in spite of whatever you may feel is real at the moment. So in those moments when you feel lonely, when you feel discouraged, worship God. During those times when you feel overwhelmed, worship God. And as you worship God, your situation, now check this out, your situation may not change. But your perspective will. It's like the story I heard about this girl in college who wrote a letter home to her parents that read this. Dear mom and dad, I want you to know that I've met a guy. He's 15 years older than me. I'm four months pregnant with this child, and we decided to elope. I've dropped out of school, and we've moved to the woods of northern Alaska. I'll contact you sometime in the future, your loving daughter. And then a little further down, it read, just kidding, but I did fail one class, and I need $200. <laughs> Let's keep this in perspective. You see, it's not our circumstances that cause us to lose hope. It's our perspective of those circumstances. I love and hate what Psalm 34, 1 says, and it says this. It says, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. Not sometimes or when life is really hitting the mark. Not just when the marriage is great or the kids are perfect. Not when you get the promotion at work and, 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 and the affirmation is just rolling in at those times. And constantly, even when life hits you hard, almost harder than you can bear, God is still worthy of worship. Because you can either worship your circumstances, or you can worship God, but you can't do both. And I want to encourage you to always worship God. 
That's the second way. And the third way to push back discouragement is this. Get back up again. Get back up again. Like the psalmist says, what do you do when wave after wave after wave of discouragement comes crashing down on you? Do you make camp at the point of your discouragements or do you get back up? Do you make your home at your worst or do you get back up and continue to pursue God's best for your life? Because what I have learned is that in order to function in this life, you and I have to have a little bit of buoyancy. We have to learn how to bounce back and get up when life knocks us down. Because if you don't, eventually you will stay down. And eventually, if you don't have any bounce back in your life, you will drown in your discouragement. And that's what discouragement does in a person's life. It's like a lead weight that is around our neck, dragging us down deeper and deeper. I love what um, author Ray Johnson says about discouragement in his book, The Hope Quotient. He says this, discouragement precedes destruction. Discouragement precedes destruction. No one's ever come to me ever and said, man, I am so thriving and so encouraged in my marriage we're getting divorced. No one's ever said to me, man, I am so encouraged with what's going on at school right now, I'm dropping out. No one's ever said, man, we are so excited about everything that's happening here at Motion City Church and everything that we see coming in the future, we're leaving. Any marriage that's ever broken up, any person who's ever given up, any company that's ever gone belly up has been preceded by one common emotion. At some point, discouragement crept in. Pastor Rick Warren calls this the, dece- the disease of discouragement, and he says it has four characteristics. It's universal. We all get it. It's repeating. We get it more than once. Number three, it's contagious. We can catch it from other people. And number four, it's deadly. Let me share with you an acronym one of the most deadly acronyms ever, and I'm guessing uh, you've experienced this maybe at one time, TWNC, things will never change. Your circumstance will never change. Your job will never change. Your spouse will never change. Your marriage will never change. Your kids will never change. You will never change. And I'm guessing because we're human, some of us, maybe all of us, have experienced a case of the TWNCs before, right? Right? But let me give you another acronym this morning that, will, that you can use to replace that TWNC mindset to change your mindset, and that's this. It's WCTB. What can this become? See, this question has the power and has the ability to change anything and everything in your current circumstance. So your child is defiant right now, but what could they become? Your marriage is loveless and going nowhere, but what could it become? Your job is meaningless, but what could your job become? You're not having any kind of kingdom impact that you're wanting to have in this world. And by the grace of God, what and who could you become? This is what it all boils down to today, and that is this. It's an is versus become mindset. Can you look past what is to see what could become? I want to tell you just a quick story, and I'm going to show you a video, and then we'll be done. This guy, Howard Hendricks, he's a famous Christian professor. Uh, Most notably, he's been at Dallas Theological Seminary, and 
And he, and he just died a few years ago, but in his entire life, he was not living on a path that would say, yes, you are going to be a famous Christian professor speaking and teaching at one of the most famous theological seminaries in our nation. As, as uh, Hendricks would describe himself, that he was a, a hellraiser. He was a self-described hellraiser. In fifth grade, actually, and this is totally true, a teacher had to tie him to his chair with rope, and they taped his mouth shut, and then the teacher exclaimed in front of the class, you are the worst boy ever. And then the teacher said that he and his three, be his three closest friends would all end up in prison one day. And that teacher was right about the other three friends, but Hendricks moved from fifth grade to sixth grade and got a brand new teacher, and her name was Miss No. And as Miss No was going down the roster, got to Hendricks's name, she stopped, she looked up, she looked at him dead in the eyes, and she said to him, I've heard a lot about you. And Hendricks's shoulders dropped, and he thought to himself, well, here we go again. But then the teacher, Miss No, continued to speak and said, but I don't believe a word of it. See, for the first time, Howard Hendricks felt like someone believed in him and saw potential in him, and it caused him to work the hardest he's ever worked. He never got in trouble his sixth grade year on through the rest of high school. He got straight A's. Miss No saw past who Howard Hendricks was to who he could become. And then Howard Hendricks becomes a, a Bible professor. And, and, and Hendricks felt at, at some point he should return the favor. And so after reading one of his students' papers at Dallas Theological Seminary, he wrote a little note on top of a student's paper that said, you will write the books one day that I will read. And that student was named Charles Swindoll. If you don't know who Charles Swindoll is, he has written 70 best-selling Christian living books. He is a staple in how to live a life that God has called you to. I have read so many of his books, and I am so grateful that Howard Hendricks had missed Noah as a teacher because Charles Swindoll's ministry and his books have affected my life profoundly. Is versus become. See, we have to learn to bounce back from discouragement. And the question that's dependent on all of that is this. I'm going to put it up on the, on the screen real quick. Does that person have any hope? This leads me to ask the question, what makes and keeps you discouraged? What keeps you from getting back up again? If, if you find yourself discouraged on Facebook, don't go on Facebook. If you find yourself discouraged after spending a lot of time with certain people, man, I want to encourage you to set boundaries and parameters to the amount of time that you choose to spend with those people. If you get discouraged by reading magazines of celebrities and airbrush models, man, stop reading them. Start your day centered around who God is, what he's done for you, put some worship music on, get your heart connected with God, and then as you continue to work throughout your day, as you're remembering who God is, it is very hard to remain discouraged, and this will help you increase your ability to get back up. Can we pray? <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. God, that even in the midst of discouraging seasons, God, we can put our hope in you. 
God, just because circumstances come our way doesn't mean they knock us down. But God, by your strength, you give us the ability, you give us the insight to see that life is worth getting back up again for. So Father, I pray for anybody right now who's dealing with a discouraging situation. Father, I ask, God, that you would give them the ability and the power to speak into their circumstances. God, not positive things, but God, truths about who you are, that you say you will never leave us nor forsake us. So God, I pray, Lord, that as we begin to put into practice, God, the things that you've spoken to us today, God, would we begin to see discouragement pushed further and further away from our lives, and God, would we begin to experience the victory that you've created and purpose for us to live in. God, we love you. Thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name.